Welcome to Bully Pulpit. That was Teddy Roosevelt. I'm Bob Garfield. With episode 30, The Cosmic Lie, part 2. If I were a rich man, all day long I'd biddy biddy bum if I were a wealthy man. In the previous episode, New York Times global economics correspondent Peter Goodman introduced us to his book, Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World. He gave us a glimpse of the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, and at the hidden architecture of venality and greed that has so perverted economies, democracies, and the welfare of the struggling 99.99% worldwide. Now comes the part where he cites specifics and names names. Peter, your book, Davos Man, is premised on the idea that the billionaire class is raping the world's treasure while billions of human souls can barely keep their heads above water, not to mention the countless homeless, starving, and abjectly destitute. But then I turn on CNBC the other day and I see one of your Davos men, J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon, saying, Catastrophe? What catastrophe? The consumer balance sheet has never been in better shape. They're spending 25% more today than pre-COVID. They've got $2 trillion in their checking accounts. Either have the wherewithal to spend more. They paid down a lot of debt. Their debt service ratio is better than it's been since we've been keeping records for 50 years. Home prices are up. Stock prices are up. Jobs are plentiful. Wages are going up. And that all tells you what's going to happen in the future. They're in pretty good shape. The man says pretty good shape. Yeah, Jamie Dimon needs to get out more. But, you know, just (laughs) definitively, like obviously the rescues in the pandemic have done a lot of good in terms of emergency unemployment benefits, in terms of bolstering assets, which is especially useful to Davos man, but has clearly staved off some greater trauma. But of course, it's a catastrophe. I mean, there are huge numbers of people threatened with eviction, even though the unemployment rate is very low. Lots of people are in jobs where their wages have been downgraded, where they have no say over their hours, where they don't have health insurance. And the pandemic has exposed time and again the downsides of having huge numbers of people labor without paid sick leave, without adequate protective gear. I mean, is it a catastrophe for the people working in Jeff Bezos's Amazon warehouses who literally were putting protective gear into boxes for other people while they didn't have it themselves? And then globally, I mean, if we look at the impacts of buying into Davos man's thinking that we must organize our societies around greater return for the wealthiest people, look at vaccine distribution, where companies like Pfizer have monopolized the fruits of publicly financed research to give us these wonderful vaccines. And thank goodness for that. We are grateful for them, but they've sold them to the highest bidders around the world. And the result of that is that most of humanity doesn't have any protection. You've still got frontline medical workers in parts of Africa and South Asia attending to COVID patients without protection while we're giving boosters to children in the United States. At top dollar. At top dollar. So we are subsidizing the monopoly profits of executives at places like Pfizer and Moderna through 
the extension of the pandemic, because it's not just a humanitarian catastrophe that you've got humanity unprotected. That's how we got variants. That's why our kids are still not able to go to school in many places, disrupting their education. That's why we're still afraid. That's why there's a couple thousand people a day dying of COVID in the United States. We are subsidizing these profits for the executive class through the extension of the pandemic. You document a lot of cynicism and opportunism, I would say depraved disregard of the human toll of their profit-seeking. You tell stories about Stephen Schwartzman, Jamie Dimon, the asset manager, tycoon Larry Fink, stories that like make the enamel peel off your teeth. And in fact, what the hell, my blood pressure is your blood pressure. Go ahead. Go crazy. Give me your worst. Well, I think it's pretty hard to top the narrative arc of Jeff Bezos in the course of the pandemic. I mean, here's a guy who allows his warehouse workers to continue working without protective gear in the first wave of the pandemic when one worker in particular, Christian Smalls, who works at a warehouse in Staten Island, says publicly, you know, this is outrageous. We need to shut down this plant. There are people suffering from COVID. All the managers are home. We're all still here. Nobody's being straight with us about what's going on. When he stages a walkout, he's fired for violating quarantine, which is incredibly ironic given that he wants everyone to be in quarantine. He just wants there to be paid sick leave, something that Amazon has prevented through years of successful lobbying. And then Bezos doubles down Davos man style sends out a letter publicly, Dear Amazonians, thanking these selfless workers for their sacrifice as essential workers, you know, keeping everybody's grandmother alive by sending out the protective gear that the workers lack. And then, as if that's not enough, we then find out from Vice News that the general counsel of Amazon, with Bezos present, actually says, let's undermine the union by connecting it to this guy, Christian Smalls, who is not smart or articulate. All right, that's pretty brutal. But you know, Peter, maybe I was hearing something that you weren't saying, but you seem to reserve a special contempt for another tycoon whose fortune is a paltry $11 billion or so. But furthermore, I think I know what frosts you. CEOs around the world need to realize they must manage for all stakeholders, not just shareholders. And there has been a mantra for too long that the business of business is business. But today, the business about business is improving the state of the world. That was Mark Benioff, founder of Salesforce.com, speaking at last year's World Economic Forum, an appearance that was a follow-up to his previous year's speech which was a real headline grabber. That was in 2020 when he famously challenged his tribe with what seemed to enunciate a whole new purpose for big business. Quote, capitalism as we have known it is dead. The obsession that we have with maximizing profits for shareholders alone has led to incredible inequality and a planetary emergency. And, you know, and that was like, whoa, the Benioff Doctrine. So getting back to where we started on this thread, 2021's forum and his remarkable victory lap 
oligarch explaining about the breathtaking heroism of Davos Man. In the pandemic, it was CEOs in many, many cases all over the world who were the heroes. They are the ones who step forward with their financial resources, their corporate resources, their employees, their factories, and pivoted rapidly, not for profit, but to save the world. I'm sorry, selflessness. I'm a little verklempt. And, and I gather a tear kind of came to your eye as well. Can you please contextualize the triumph that he was glorying in? Well, he was talking about how companies delivered COVID vaccines and finance firms had kept the credit taps flowing to stave off bankruptcy. And he was also talking about his own role. You know, he loves to tell the story of how in the first wave of the pandemic, he pulled strings in China and found 50 million pieces of PPE, face masks, medical gowns, and flew them back to the States and distributed them to frontline medical workers. Hey, that's great. I'm willing to stipulate that that probably saved lives. And it's a lot better than the alternative. But we got to ask, why are we dependent upon the largesse of a tech bro to outfit our medical workers in what's supposed to be the richest, most powerful country on earth? And part of the answer is because people like Mark Benioff have so systematically pillaged the system that it's not able to take care of itself. I mean, I mean, you look at people like Steve Schwartzman, who invested heavily in healthcare in the run-up to the pandemic, part of a wave of private equity money in healthcare that explains why we're down roughly one-third the number of hospital beds we used to have in the United States in the run-up to the pandemic. And back to Benioff. I mean, Benioff is a complicated character, and I think in, in many ways the most representative character in my book, because he actually does walk the walk in terms of philanthropy. I mean, he actually does contribute 1% of staff time at Salesforce and 1% of the revenues to all sorts of philanthropic ventures. But at the same time, this is a guy who has led a company that has paid the modest sum of zero, there's that number again, in federal taxes in years when his company has logged billions of dollars in revenues. And that doesn't happen by accident. That happens because Benioff is part of the business roundtable. This lobby shop in Washington headed for a time by J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon. He's part of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. These are entities that lobby for no paid sick leave, for huge tax cuts. I mean, Jamie Dimon played a leading role in delivering Trump's tax cuts, which produced $1.5 billion in cuts lavished primarily on people like Mark Benioff. And so all of the good stuff that he likes to talk about is like a rounding error alongside the fact that he is systematically helping starve the system of resources. Not giving back, he is taking, he's enabling the status quo. So are we speaking here of hypocrisy, of obtuseness? It's certainly not obtuseness. Delusions of grandeur? Or just old-fashioned propaganda? I think it's better than old-fashioned propaganda. I think it's the best kind of propaganda. It's the propaganda that the propagandist actually believes. The Davos man is very skilled at crafting self-serving narratives and then believing them and selling them 
in a very powerful way. I mean, I come back to something Benioff said in April 2020. He likes to go on Jim Cramer's show. Mad money. Mad money, right. And Jim Cramer is just like almost having a seizure of delight because he he loves this idea that Benioff and Larry Fink and the founder of the forum, Klaus Schwab, propagate this idea of stakeholder capitalism, this, this notion that Milton Friedmanism is over as Kramer is applauding him for planting 500 million trees. And at that point, Benioff's taken a bow for this pledge to not lay off any workers. And Kramer is saying, you know, wow, it's like you can do good and do well at the same time. The next day, by the way, Salesforce lays off a thousand employees. But of course it does. But so one of the things Benioff says in that interview that is really striking is he goes on about how like the pandemic is this great unifier of humanity because we're all vulnerable to this biological reality. Wait, wait, that sounds familiar. That's the thing about COVID-19. It doesn't care about how rich you are, how famous you are. It's the great equalizer. And what's terrible about it is what's great about it. That's made us all equal in many ways. (laughs) Okay, that's not Benioff, that's Madonna, while sitting naked, by the way, in an antique bathtub amid floating rose petals. Where was Benioff when he made his COVID kumbaya declaration? Benioff at that point is speaking from his home on the ocean, on the big island of Hawaii, or maybe it's his $28 million residence overlooking San Francisco Bay. I, I don't know. I find them hard to keep track of. And, you know, It's so easy to see that the pandemic is, of course, the opposite of uniting us all. The people who are actually out there delivering our packages, emptying bedpans in hospitals, or administering to COVID patients, like these are the people who are actually vulnerable. And these are the people who are dying in the largest numbers, while people like Benioff and Schwartzman, Schwartzman at that point, is holding dinner parties at his Hamptons estate at a time when the New York City public school system can't open because they don't have any testing, they don't have any protective gear. People like Benioff are adding to their yachts and their private islands and their jets. Benioff tweets out a picture of himself with Lars Ulrich, the drummer from Metallica. You can't see another human being in sight. This idea that we're all united by the pandemic is just absurd. And yet, I don't think that these kinds of statements are gaffes. And I don't think they're accidental. I think they're part of a worldview in which Davos Mann has successfully internalized his own propaganda. So yes, that would track with my observation about your particular disgust for Benioff. But you also say he's a likable, engaging guy. How do you square those sentiments? I don't think that we ought to be trying to force people like Mark Benioff and Larry Fink to live up to their rhetoric. I think we need to make peace with the fact that within our billionaire class are some very innovative, brilliant minds, and they've amassed a lot of wealth in large part because they produce things that people actually want. I mean, if we're going to discuss Bezos, we have to give him his props and say, e-commerce is a revolution. This guy's a genius. The powers of execution to build something at that scale, that's that reliable, that satisfies customers, that's miraculous. But we can't be expecting that people like Jeff Bezos and Larry Fink and Mark Benioff are going to solve our problems. 
I mean, it's incumbent upon the public to use the powers of democracy to have some say over fair distribution of the gains of our capitalism, over rules and regulations that create an actual level playing field in place of the the one that the Davos men would like to pretend exists when it's really tilted in their favor. We have to get out from under this idea that, you know, our hero worship of CEOs is going to lead to our salvation. In fact, you know, if we're imagining that we can impute some sort of moral transcendence to these guys who are just good at making money, you could argue that everything we ever need to know about Davos man, the bullshitness of uh, stakeholder capitalism laid bare, was his relationship with Donald Trump. And I think in that sense, forum CEO Klaus Schwab probably said it best. It is a honor to host you, Mr. President, on this very special occasion. So what do you think honored them the most? The the dignity of the office or maybe the largest corporate tax cut in American history? Yeah, I'm, I'm going with choice B, Bob. You know, I was in Davos in January of 2018 when Trump you know, fresh from handing out that $1.5 trillion worth of tax cuts shows up. And in the kind of official fake coverage of Davos that many of my colleagues must engage in, we're supposed to pretend that, you know, this is like a real clash of values. I mean, Trump, of course, is against international cooperation, thinks all multilateral institutions are a con. He's against NATO. He's pulled the U.S. out of the Paris Climate Accord. And Davos is supposed to represent multilateral cooperation and gender equality. And it stands for the fight against climate change and transparent corporate governance and and all these things that Trump posits himself as against. I mean, he's a wrecking ball aimed at the liberal world order. But the reality is, as I'm wandering around Davos, it's pretty obvious that the people who matter, the people who pay the bills, they can see through all that. You know, they'd prefer that they not have to answer for the misogynistic, racist things Trump's saying. Schwartzman's walking around privately saying to anybody who will listen, that, you know, there isn't a racist bone in Donald Trump's body. No, just the connective tissue. Yeah, right. I mean, what they want is the tax cuts and the deregulation. That's the currency these guys understand. They understand money in their pocket. And that's what Trump understands, and that's what he delivers. You mentioned the charade, and we're talking about Klaus Schwab. In this sleepy little alpine village, uh, Schwab seems to have, over the decades, constructed a uh, Potemkin village, a facade of altruism and vision concealing a vast conveyor complex to move money and to power the gears of global trade. Right. Now, I know that the robber barons built huge civic and cultural institutions named for themselves to kind of launder the reputations and replace public scorn with eternal goodwill. But if your analysis is correct, this whole operation is you know, less the Rockefeller Foundation or Carnegie Libraries or some such, then it is just guys and dolls running a crap game out of the Salvation Army. It's the oldest established permanent crap game in 
I don't use the gambling analogy for no reason. The world of finance, unlike the the rest of the business world, doesn't actually make anything. <laughs> it, it doesn't create products or even wealth. It brokers transactions and it it takes a fig, you know, a piece of the action. And I'm not naive. I understand that business requires capital to operate and grow, but is there anything that the hedge fund tycoons and the private equity tycoons and the asset management tycoons and the investment banking tycoons do that actually adds to the world's treasure or to the comfort of the 99.99%? Finance is hugely important, right? And it's part of the modern economy, but we've allowed it to be like this giant casino where if we're not sitting in the corner office, we're the suckers sitting at the table. There's no question that the experience, uh, certainly of the financial crisis of 2008, and the way in which we've responded to events since, right up through the pandemic, reinforces that the finance class is using their wealth to protect themselves from any kind of accountability. I mean, there's a story that Schwartzman tells in his memoir, and he tells it quite frequently, which I find really interesting, where he's a senior at Yale, and through a skull and bones connection, the secret society, he gets an audience with Averill Harriman, the industrialist, former governor of New York. I mean, he goes and and he meets Averill Harriman at his glorious apartment overlooking Central Park on the Upper East Side. And he asks Harriman for his advice on his own career prospects. He's thinking about public office at that point. And Harriman asks him, are you independently wealthy, Mr. Schwartzman? And Schwartzman says, no. And he says, well, my advice to you is to go and get wealth. Because if I wasn't the heir to the Union Pacific fortune, you wouldn't be sitting here talking to me today. And Schwartzman takes that advice and goes and amasses incredible wealth and then learns how to use that wealth to protect his own power. And I think in that story is the story of what's happened to finance writ large. It's become untethered from the real economy. I mean, look, we need mortgages. Auto loans are great. It's expensive to pay for college. There should be financing mechanisms. We need a place to deposit our funds, to manage our retirement. All that's good and well, but it's become untethered finance by and large from all of those important needs and has essentially become this big casino. And as a direct toll of this venality comes a long list of societal harms, much of which you enumerated earlier, but to which I would add one giant addition, the destruction of planet Earth. You know, there's a lot to answer for. But identifying problems is one thing, and you've you've done an extraordinary job in Davos Man. Thanks. But what's the solution? I mean, how do we rehabilitate Davos Man? How do we make stakeholder value more than just an applause line? Or, short of that, how do we just cut the fucker down to size? Yeah, I don't think we should be rehabilitating Davos Man. I mean, I tell you in the book, like this is a taxonomy of a species that's a predator. And it's an especially powerful predator because it can adopt the guise of our friend and then it uses that to gain our trust and rip our face off. Like we shouldn't be building an economy where we're counting on Davos man doing the right thing. That's our problem. That's certainly not the solution. 
we need to let business do what business does. I mean, reward shareholders, come up with great ideas, try to make huge amounts of money. That's all fine. I'm not here to demonize these guys. But we need to get back to controlling democracy for ourselves. We need to take the levers of democracy away from Davos men. That's going to require getting money out of politics and then putting in place things, by the way, that we already have. This is not like some exotic utopian reach. This is a restoration of things we've already had in the United States and that still exist in other major economies. We need progressive taxation. We need antitrust enforcement. We need to allow labor to organize so that there's collective bargaining, so that workers actually get a piece of the action. And if we did those things, we would have solved many of our problems. So we don't need a miracle. We just need 1956. Look, I don't have a fetish for 1956 or that post-war period. We've made tremendous progress. Look, I mean, we're talking about a period where there was Jim Crow law in the United States, right? We had the Vietnam War through the 60s and the 70s. We don't want a time machine back to 56, 75, whatever. But we do want to restore one part of that time, and that is labor being able to count on wages that reflect the productivity gains in the economy. That has to happen, because if that doesn't happen, we don't have faith in institutions. We don't have the ability to talk to one another about important problems like climate change. We cannot expect that people are going to be willing to accept the wrenching transitions. But how do we expect anybody to take the leap if we don't have policies in place that help people out when they lose their jobs, when they can't pay their rent? Fundamentally, we're living in a time when huge numbers of people have lost faith in our system of governance. They've lost faith in the justness of our economy. They've lost faith in the idea that if you set your alarm clock and you go off to work and you stay out of trouble and you get your kids some education, that you're going to be all right. You're going to have a decent standard of living. You might have a vacation. Your kids can go to college. People have lost faith in that, not because they're crazy, but because those things have been degraded and taken away. The point of my book is to show that none of that happened by accident. You know, Davos Man would have us believe that every economic problem is so complex that it can't be solved by any one government. The most important men in town will come to fall on me. They will ask me to advise them like a Solomon the wise. If you please, Reptavia, pardon me. Posing problems that would cross a rabbi's eyes. And that's an elaborate way of getting us to accept the status quo and the ultimate false binary that we either embrace and affirm the world as it is with all of its miracles, with Google and Uber and e-commerce like Amazon and COVID vaccines, or we're Luddites, you know, living in the thrall of backwards ideas, we might as well be Venezuela. And, you know, that's just false. There are other options on the menu. So we need to restore the kind of capitalism that we've actually known before, where monopolists can't just behave without any accountability, where there is more of a level playing field, where small businesses have a shot and can then employ people, 
where there's greater opportunity. And only through that, only through that process, can we restore some basic faith in the justice of our society. We've got to restore that basic fairness, which means forcing Davos man to submit to some sacrifices, to progressive taxation, to labor rules. And only through that process can we then have really important conversations about vital issues of extinction for our species where we actually are all connected, like climate change. Peter, thank you very much for spending all this time with me. Thank you. Peter Goodman is the global economics correspondent for the New York Times and author of Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World. And I'll just add this one note. The entire first hour of our conversation was not recorded due to an error by some dumbass who was me. And Peter agreed to start over because he is a god. All right, we're done here. Bully Pulpit is produced by Matthew Schwartz and Mike Bolo. Our theme was composed by Julie Miller and the team at Harvest Creative Services in Lansing, Michigan. Tape clips came from the Fiddler on the Roof cast album, CNBC, the World Economic Forum, the Guys and Dolls cast album, and Madonna's Bathroom. Bully Pulpit is a production of Booksmart Studios. I'm Bob Garfield.